This is the Skate Podcast on WEEI.com and the Radio.com app. Bobby Orr, behind the net to Sanderson, Bobby Orr! For the first time in 39 years, the Boston Bruins have won the Stanley Cup. Talking Bruins and NHL. Sure, old-time hockey. Like it is sure. With writer and producer Brian DeFelice. Brian DeFelice is an emerging talent. Bridget Prue. Yeah, he's a little bit on the hot seat. Burn him! And WEEI.com Bruins writer Scott McLaughlin. Great Scott! Lace him up for some bees talk right now. I'm a damn dog! It's the Skate Pod on WEEI. Okay, welcome into episode 52 of the Skate Podcast, and as Bridget pointed out earlier today in our text chain, it's the 10th episode with the three of us, so um, there's a little milestone. Uh, another milestone is the first time ever that Scott was correct <laughs> when he predicted a, a four games to one series win for the Bruins, so... Where are my party sound effects? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can add them in later. Yeah, even a blind squirrel finds them that right, so... <laughs> I expect him to be taking a victory lap for most of this episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, I will say, Scott completely hijacked my Charlie McAvoy <laughs> uh, uh, bandwagon approach all year, wanting him in the first PP. And then I was right. Scott comes out, and he's like praising him and writing articles about it. I'm like, you son of a bitch, Scott. Yeah, I'm like reluctant, reluctant like going, yeah, I don't know, Brian. Like, I don't know if it's going to make that much of a difference. And now this series, uh. I'm like... You're right, Charlie McAvoy, first how, power play. Here we go. How good did he look? Here's a thousand word column about it. How good did he did he look? Honestly, I'm starting to think that Cassidy was like playing possum all, se- all, all season and didn't want to give other teams a look with him <laughs> on there. And now it's just like, honestly, I felt so vindicated. I have nothing to do with the Bruins or the coaching staff, but I think that they was kind of to like you, Brian. I, I, I think, they were I think and th- there's a slight chance that they listen to the podcast and 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 know my feelings about it. He looks dynamite, really yeah, good. Well, you know, and I think when Cassidy was talking about McAvoy playing the point in the power play and moving up to that top unit, it was interesting to talk about him, you know, what McAvoy had to learn and where he had to improve. Because he said, you know, McAvoy's a player who wants to go north-south. He likes going down that half wall. He likes, you know, jumping in, going low. We see that a lot in 5-on-5 five five where he kind of comes down the half wall, he circles, he ends up behind the net, in front of the net. And the power play, it's more as Cassie put, you know, east-west. It's moving along the blue line, walking the point, going between the face-off dots. And he felt like in order to fit into what they want to do with the top power play unit, McAvoy almost had to go against some of his instincts as a player. And he's gotten better at that, and he's learned that walking along the, the blue line type of role. And now that's not the power play unit they started the series with, though. This was an yeah. adjustment they made when the Capitals started really pressuring them and not giving them very much space. They also were getting some easy clears, and they were winning, winning a lot of face-off battles. So the Bruins had less possession time in the first game or two of the series, and then that kind of made him make the switch to Krejci and McAvoy because those guys are better for puck possession. They're better for entries, uh, and it ended up working out in the Bruins' favor. I'm not sure, Brian, if he was holding on to that, you know, the wild card wow. in the back, like, what? oh, I'm going to play this when I need to. But yeah. but it definitely, he said he was just trying to keep it simple, and that was the simplest way to break down that uh, tough pressure on the penalty kill for Washington. Well, whether he was doing that or not, the fact of the matter is it, that is the end result, right? It's a new look that teams, and it's a weird year anyway, because once, you know, the teams get down to the Final Four, it's nobody's seen anybody anyway. But... um. 
Yeah, look, I'm looking at the the point leaders for the Bruins through the first series, obviously, and, and uh, Chucky's right behind Pasta with five points, and um, Pasta has six. So, yeah. I mean, and all, those are all assists, but I think— And they're all assists on the power play. Were they all power yeah, play points? Yeah, they're all power play assists. Um, and, you know, Bridget brought up adjustments, and I think that's um, a good topic to discuss real quick because, um, you know, I think the Bruins are better than Washington in every category, five-on-fives, um, and both special teams units. And one of the reasons for that is because the Bruins were able to adjust and the Capitals weren't. And um, there were some personnel dis- uh, changes, like we discussed, with McAvoy and Krejci going to the top unit. And Grizzlick, you know, went down to that second unit with Hall, and the chemistry was still there. So that was that was good to see. But one major adjustment that the Bruins decided to make was putting um, Pasta on a strong side in the power play as opposed to the offside circle. And... Where in the past he was had the Ovechkin esque one timer, where ironically even Ovechkin didn't have that. This I series. was, I was, I'll get to that in yeah. a second. Yeah. So, um, so they put they put Pasta on a strong side, and he's able to kind of do like the kind of like how um, the Maple Leafs use Austin Matthews a lot. He'll come up at the top and circle down, and it got Pasta, um, you know, uh, on a score sheet. Obviously, Marshan tipped that first one in Game Four. Um, but it was it was pasta shot mentality, and then in um, the third period, same thing. But there was no Marshan tip, so um, got pasta going in the power play. I don't know if you would agree with this or not, Brian, but moving pasta over to that side did create a little bit more movement because it, you know, when you're over there, uh, when he's over there setting up where Ovechkin sets up, the temptation is always there to just take the one timer rather than than to make another look. So when they moved him over to the right side, he ends up being able to kind of make some different reads, move the puck a little bit in a, in a little bit of a different way, move around the zone a little bit more than he normally would. And like you were saying, Ovechkin wasn't very good at it um, in this series. And maybe that's one of the main reasons why they decided not to kind of use that style one-time uh, weapon on their power play because they knew exactly how they were about to take away Ovechkin and mm-hmm. they did it very well. And that's an easy thing that they solved that they were probably worried the the Capitals would realize and just do the exact same thing right back to them because they were not allowing. I know I put this in one of my articles mid series. Uh, mid series, Cassie was talking about the penalty kill how it's been solid the whole time, and the main one of the main reasons for that was that they decided which four out of the five threats were most important to take away on Washington's power play, and it seemed pretty obvious as you got into the series that they were going to allow that slap shot from Ovechkin as the one thing that they weren't going to necessarily take away. They're going to take away the pass, hopefully impeded in some way, and they did because he wasn't getting clean shots off, and then just hope that that right side defenseman could just step into the shooting lane. And that ended up being a really uh, effective way to kill off their power plays. Carlo took a few right to the shins. Clifton took a few for the team. And so I think that they probably knew what their game plan was for that kind of a power play and didn't want to necessarily execute the same kind of thing. Yeah, Carlo and Clifton deserve about as much credit as anyone for just just a brutal role. Like with how many penalties the Bruins took, they were just repeatedly sent over the boards with the the job description of go stand in front of Alex Ovechkin's slap shot. Yeah. And they did it all series long. Like, you know, they each must have had at least a handful of blocks on that shot. Well, and, Clifton had two in a row on yeah. one one penalty kill shift, and he just looked like, okay, he's going to need some time to rest on the bench after those. Yeah, and so whereas the Bruins, as we've said, made adjustments on the power play, not just in personnel but in flipping Pasta knock over, the Capitals were way too slow to adjust. Like, 
the Bruins had taken that. It was pretty clear through two games that the Bruins were taking away that Ovechkin shot, and it wasn't until Game Five. Game when Five, they, last third period, did they yeah. did they wait and to move him when, back up to the point? They moved him from the left wing to the point. Yeah, exactly. Like that that should have been done so much earlier. So for for those reasons, and we'll get into more uh, adjustments that Cassidy made, and then some that Washington, for whatever reason, didn't make. Cassidy won the coaching battle, leaps and bounds. Over Laviolette. Yeah, I think Laviolette lost the coaching battle when he didn't know the nickname for the Bruins' top line, right? He tried the little <laughs> gamesmanship with the uh, perfection line, not knowing what they were called. Well, uh, amazingly, I, I can't believe Laviolette didn't succeed in this, but by not naming his lineup at morning skate every day, somehow did not throw the Bruins for a total loop and leave them just out there scratching their heads in confusion. Well, I think what happened was... I thought was... they were going to bench Ovechkin <laughs> when, they, when they didn't put him on the on the list uh, after warm-ups. My gut instincts, and it's only my gut instincts, but my gut instincts tell me that Lavalette's, you know, head was elsewhere when he realized his brother was getting chirped at brunch a few weeks ago by a, a writer <laughs> at WEEI uh, who's also on this podcast, and I'll, her name will remain nameless. <laughs> But that that may have been where some uh, games. Yeah, he, well, he was telling me, well, now the now the Stanley Cup's not coming to brunch on Sundays in Attleboro. So yeah, um, you know, but to your guys' points about Clifton and Carlo, look, um, you know, it, it's it's one thing to watch it on TV and be like, you know, oh, great job getting those blocking lanes and those shooting lanes and whatnot, but that takes a lot of courage. Any one of those shots, they they know going into it, and yeah, there's there's um strategy on how to block shots the right way but look anything can happen and shots can go anywhere uh every time that Clifton and Carlo and and those right side defensemen go to block an OV one timer they do so knowing like yeah this could like break my my leg or my ankle or my wrist like they know that going into it and they still do it and that's what it takes to win to win um you know in the playoffs and to do so for four series potential obviously four series um potentially seven games a series is why the Stanley Cup is the toughest trophy to win in my opinion yeah and like and we saw one Bruins defenseman knocked out by blocking a shot Jeremy Lozon and game one takes a shot off his off his right hand and doesn't return for for the series and obviously by the end of it with the Miller injury they could have used him Tenorti stepped in and played pretty well in game five I thought um but you know they'll need whether it's Miller, Lausanne, like they could really use one of them coming back in this next well, series. Miller is a, a long ways off from coming back, and and yeah. that was something that was talked talk about, about by Don Sweeney earlier today. Was that he's in the first stages of recovery, and he's still a while away from coming back. But he did say that Lausanne should be ready for the next series at some point. Well, yeah, he said he they he hoped Lausanne would be ready. Lausanne and Zaboral, they they're hoping both of them are back. So we'll see. They also said you know we'll know more later in the week. The Bruins. We're off the ice Monday. They are, they're off the ice Tuesday, so they get a little bit of downtime here. I think they're planning to be back in practice on Wednesday. So they'll probably get an idea then, you know, who's with the group, who's able to skate if anyone's in non-contact. Yeah, I wouldn't expect Miller back for the start of the series, but we'll see. Obviously, concussions are incredibly difficult to predict, and as Sweeney mentioned, he's only in the early stages of the recovery, which means, you know, still probably going through, like, a lot of initial testing see how he gets from one day to the next type stuff so um yeah we'll have to see how that goes I don't think I don't think you want to be in a situation where you're relying on Jared Tenorti to be playing regularly for any prolonged stretch of time I just think especially at playoff pace eventually his uh his lack of mobility and his slowness in getting pucks out of the zone on the breakout will will hurt you you know 
in, in some cases, like, your best bet with him is just have him flip it out into the neutral zone and go from there. Um, his matchup, him matching up against Washington, though, wasn't the be- wasn't the worst matchup he could have gotten. Like, if that, if you need to bring him in against, say, Pittsburgh, you're worse off than if you bring him in against Washington because he's playing against some bigger body guys that aren't necessarily as fast as maybe some of the guys on Pittsburgh. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I would agree. Pittsburgh would be a bad matchup for him. That's if it came to that, you wonder. You know, Cassidy mentioned Uro Vakaninen as an option. I definitely never thought he was going to get into this series, not uh, with Washington's physicality. But, like, I wonder if that would be an option against Pittsburgh. Obviously, if you're the Bruins, you'd hope you really don't have to get there. You just hope Lausanne's back and you plug him in next to Clifton and go from there. Yeah, the only the only two forwards on the Islanders, in my opinion, that really back off defenders with their speed are Barzell and Bolivier. Bolivier. Bolivier, whatever his name is. Learn French, Brian. <laughs> I took it in high school. You wouldn't know that, though. Um. Yeah, those two. Other than that, the, the Islanders don't have you know much much speed. Um. So Tenorti could be fine in that matchup. But Pittsburgh, I would I would agree with you guys. Maybe go someone a little bit a little bit quicker. Um. I think the Miller the Miller topic is a good one. Um. As far as he's like you know he and Lozon go down, but the best part about beating the Capitals in five games is that you kind of avoid that war of attrition against them and. Um, you know, you, you enter round two with plenty of rest and, and um, for the most part, great health. And that's something that going into the series, you know, all it takes is one hit from, from Wilson or Hathaway or Ovechkin or whoever um, to knock out a very important forward. And, you know, as well as the Bruins have been playing up front with their with their newfound depth since the deadline, you know, you lose someone like Apasta or Krejci, Marshan, Bergeron, Hall, whatever – changes the dynamic of the team and um or you know a McAvoy in the back end and all those guys are, are going to be rested for round two whenever that begins yeah and Brian that's something that Toronto's dealing with right now they lost their captain uh John Travaris uh in the very first game of their series with Montreal so it should be interesting to see how out that way they they handle um losing someone like that but you're right the Bruins uh are lucky because we all went into the series thinking oh we actually had this as one of our questions uh will Tom Wilson get suspended and he was right on that one and yeah he did not I said the safe bet was that he would be suspended Anthony Mantha ended up getting fined which that one I was kind of I was surprised he was the one who was diving into the net like that but that was the only infraction really that that came in in the Bruins series yeah it wasn't I couldn't. I still don't know if like, Anthony kind of did that intentionally, unintentionally, or if he was just like legitimately completely unaware of where he was on the ice because he kind of just like he's like looking over his shoulder and just sort of wandering in, and then like next thing you know he's just bowling over Rask, and it's like, if that was intentional, then it was the dumbest penalty ever because like how did you think you were gonna get away with that? So I almost have to think that was unintentional, yeah. but. Either way, it was really stupid. Like you got to know where you are in the ice. Well, one that was very intentional and equally as stupid was Kuznetsov just cross-checking Rask, like yeah. clear as day in the middle of the play, cost the Capitals a goal. Um, and I think one of the broadcasters said, "Don't you know there's cameras everywhere? Like yeah. there's cameras everywhere. You're now, not getting away with to it." To play devil's advocate, like if you're if you're an official looking at that play, the question is, um, did did Kuznetsov impede Rask's, Rask's ability to get back and play his position in time for the goal? I thought it was very close. Oh, I think 100%. He, he It wasn't he, necessarily that he impeded him from going back. He pushed him further yeah, out than he wanted but like, to be, he so enough, he was out of position. Was there enough time for him to recover and, and, and whatnot? Um, I think they got it right. I'm just yeah. saying, like, you know, um, and I think Lavalette said, 
himself. You are really struggling with these French names. Laviolette. Laviolette. Oh my god. Give me a break. <laughs> Can you say my name, Brian? Uh Brigitte. Prolks. <laughs> uh he he basically said as much. He was like, "Yeah, uh, we we thought our guy would be going to the box. We didn't if we challenged, so we didn't do so. We still had a power play. So um, I'm kind of jumping over to game five, but yeah, the Manta thing was dumb. Um, you know, the only play that really could have been suspendable uh, again, I probably don't think it was, but was the Orloff play. Um, didn't even get a fine, so I guess that speaks volumes as to what the league thought on that play. Yeah, and was initially called a five minute major and got overturned to a two minute roughing minor plus the additional. Two minutes for getting into it with Coyle after. But I really didn't like the hit, and I think it should have stayed a major. It, to me, it was late. It was high. He left his feet. You know, I guess the debate becomes, is the principal point of contact his shoulder or chest, or was it his chin? It was kind of hard to tell because he definitely gets him in, like, the shoulder or chest first. But then I think his hands kind of ride up, like, under Miller's chin. Either way, so. that's what the referees on the ice originally came up to Cassidy. He was talking about this postgame. The ref came up to Cassidy and looked him, looked at him and said, we're going to review it, but uh, we think he hit shoulder first. And you don't think he made contact with the head first. And then when they went to review it, that's what they decided to was going to be the right call was just the two minutes and that, uh, you know, the contact to the head wasn't necessarily the first point of contact and that it wasn't worth the five-minute major. So on the ice, the referees, I'm pretty sure, knew they weren't going to call that major. Yeah, I just, just looking at it, that's a hit that I feel like should be more than two minutes because... It is, for sure it is. Like I said, he's leaving his feet, he's catching him high, it's a little bit late, like, there's just... That's not a hit being thrown to separate a guy from the puck. That's a hit being thrown to send a message and or potentially hurt someone. It, it like to me that's the kind of hit that you should be taking out of the game. Whether he gets him, you know, gets enough of his shoulder or chest first. The, the, either way, the the fact that he leaves his feet is really what kind of shows you his intentions in that situation. Yeah. His intention is to hit him up high, and his intention is to hit him pretty much with all the force that he can. Yeah, I mean, I I think I see it a little bit differently than than a lot of people on this. I I definitely thought it was a penalty, and I definitely wouldn't have argued if it was more than you know what he got. Um, but it's one of those plays where like you know you go back and you watch it on Twitter, and you see everybody with the slow mo replays, and like you can see the feet leaving the ice, and and it makes it look really bad. But people lose sight sometimes of like, okay, if you're Orloff in real time. Like, he makes that decision he's going to step up on Miller, like, you know, very, very quickly. He probably sold the puck on a stick, and there was some distance to be traveled there, like, to step up on him. And I just think that, like, by the time he went to hit him, like, he, he there wasn't enough. He just didn't realize how far away from him he was. And I don't, like, I've seen guys, like, literally, like, on, if you can go on YouTube and, like, like look up old-time hockey, like, guys on the four check literally jump into the guys into the glass. Like, when somebody says he left his feet, I guess my question is, okay, was it, did his toes leave the ice because of the con- the impact of the contact and whatnot? I don't know. That's not, but that's not how it was in this hit. His feet were off the ice. Yeah, first. I think his feet were off the ice. Like when he made contact. Well, what, su- what surprised me was the contact itself. Kevin Miller, pound for pound, is one of the toughest guys in the NHL, if not the toughest. And the contact on the hit itself, I was surprised to see him dazed and confused because I was like, oh, it didn't look like he got him that bad. 
Um, and then you said maybe he hit his head on the ice afterwards, yeah. and that could be what, what it was. Um, I, like I said, I definitely thought it was a penalty. I definitely wouldn't have argued if it was um, a game. I just sometimes I just like to you know I, I like to put the pitchforks away and, and torches away and see like okay how what was it, was it really malicious intent and I don't know if like because Orloff's not really that kind of player and I I do consider to put that into consideration when I look at that play like he's not it's not like Tom Wilson or Hathaway like he's a pretty honest player I think but that doesn't yeah. mean he's um, excused from from his actions at all. No, I, I think at the very least it was an extremely awkwardly thrown hit. Hundred like, percent, poorly was, executed. Yeah, very clumsy. At, yeah, like at best. So looked like a kid that was like playing check, ch- like check leagues for the first time as like an eleven year old. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, I thought I thought the same thing. And the and the outcome ends up being obviously tough outcome. It's a tough outcome yeah. for Miller, and then but then it's also a, a tough outcome for Washington because they ended up they end up giving up a power play goal right after. Uh, which was originally accredited to Pasta for like 20 minutes, which I don't understand why yeah, because it was very clearly yeah. tipped by Marshawn. So anyway, it, it ends up uh, putting the Bruins up one nothing in that game. And this this game was kind of, this is the one that got out of control for them. There were a lot of moments in the series where you could look back and say, that was a signature moment by the Bruins. I think, to, I think about Taylor Hall tying the game late in game two. Uh, Marshan tying the game late in Game Three. I think about Pasta making the Capitals pay for Orlov's hit on Miller because I think when you lose a guy Marshan? like the, oh sorry yeah <laughs> yeah hello uh, Marshan because um, because Miller is such an important player that like you know the Capitals know he's out for the game at least and then if the Bruins don't score on that power play you know those are the momentum shifts that sometimes can can hinder a team and make them lose a game and and the Bruins responded. Another moment would be um, later in the game when when the capital when Ovechkin got that lucky power play goal. Okay, it's three one now. The Bruins have dominated. Who gets the next goal? And the Bruins did. And then also, you know, Bergeron was huge in Game Five and stuffed um, Washington's momentum when they made it two to one. So there were a handful of signature moments, and I think that that one that Bridget brought up, the power play goal after Miller going down, was one of them. Yeah, and and that goal to make it four one in Game Four. So that was, the Grizzly goal. That was the Grizzly power play goal that came after Mantha ran over Rass. So again, Capitals doing something foolish. And Bruins were able to make them pay. Yeah, yeah three the, times on the power play yeah. that game. Three out of five times the Bruins scored on the power play that game. Yeah, and you know, look, the, the Bruins took plenty of penalties themselves, and some foolish. Uh, obviously, you know, we've talked about Marshan, but uh, the Capitals weren't able to make the Bruins pay, and the, the Bruins took advantage of those. They pounced on their mistakes and. You know, game three, that double overtime, Craig Smith winner quite literally pounces on a mistake, uh, a miscommunication. You know, we talked, you know, we went into the series saying uh, Bruins should have the advantage in goal. And then through two games, we're kind of wondering if that's playing out. You know, Rask has gone beat, yes, and deflected shots, but some of them have kind of squeaked through them. They haven't looked good. Uh, Craig Anderson comes out of nowhere, you know, almost 40 years old. And you doesn't like, have a bad game. You know, we, we talked on the last podcast after game two that it looked like Anderson was out playing Rask. Well, so much for that. They bring in Samsonov when he returns. Anderson, I guess, had maybe he's just old, but had some sort of physical issue. Wasn't even the backup the next game. Uh, needed like maintenance or something. Yeah, and the uh, backup. Who was the backup that game? It was Phoenix Copley. I was going to say it wasn't anyone that I'd ever Ooh. heard of before. I remember covering Phoenix Copley when he was he played for Michigan Tech. They had 
some series out this way against one of the college hockey teams out here anyways. Mm. But yeah, that was like the last time I had ever thought of Phoenix Copley, and then here he is. Um, well, he's the fifth string goalie <laughs> for them this year. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, Samsonov was mostly good in, in his three starts, but just made a couple mistakes that Tugarask did not make over those final three games. And the, you know, the miscommunication with Schultz on, on Craig Smith's overtime winner. Then in game five, the Bruins are leading one nothing. The Capitals have dominated the second period. You know, that looks like they're really close to tying goal or, you know, at least generating chances. They have possession. They're throwing shots at the net. And then completely against the run of play, Samsonov gets beat by a Bergeron snapshot from, you know, 25, 30 feet out that he wasn't even set on and really should have been in much better position, should have been ready for and was still kind of sliding out, gets beat blocker side. A good shot by Bergeron for sure, but a, a stoppable shot and a save that the Capitals really needed. Like, that was that was just a back-breaking goal, and Rask did not give up those goals over the final three games. Yeah, I mean, you look at that goal, and it felt like a video game glitch, right? Like, Pasta's lying down on the ice <laughs> uh, intentionally, yeah. right? Um, and then, yeah, Bergeron just, you know, a quick snapshot from the top of the circle, you know, shouldn't have gone in. I mean, again, put pucks on the net and good things happen, and... You know, Bergeron definitely is an accurate shooter. You saw that on a, on a second goal of the night. Yeah, um, and a really quick release. Quick release. And, you know, but that's that's a shot that Samsonov has to make. Um, you know, unlike the second goal by Bergeron where Pasta got his ass in front of uh, the goalie and took his eyes away, Samsonov saw that entire play in front of him. Um, I don't know what he thinks Bergeron's going to do. There's no passing options. It's literally a one-on-three. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you bring up, like, yeah, like, so, yeah, to answer the question, um like Tuka was good. He was good in the series. He was he outplayed he outplayed um whatever goalie the Capitals put uh, in the in the pipes for them. Um when we last spoke, that wasn't really the case. It was it was Tuka after two games, some questionable goals, specifically, you know, the one in overtime in game one and maybe one in game two. Um and I think his counterpart was Anderson and he played well. Um and we hadn't seen Samsonov yet, and so since then, yeah, he had the blunder in game three and a couple of bad goals, uh you know, in between some really good saves, but just wasn't good enough. And I think Tuca, you know, he wasn't he wasn't called upon heavily. Like you know, the, the Caps. But had he some he made a comment after last game, uh, game the game five win to end the series that some sometimes he was halfway through the game and only seen six shots. So he wasn't able. He's like sometimes that's harder. So it's sometimes <laughs> like so in the last game he faced forty one shots, saved all but one of them. He was looking pretty sharp because he was getting tested all the time and he was really in the zone because, you know, that once you kind of get a feel for it, uh, you do a little bit better than when you're just sitting around in your net waiting for the puck to come back in your end of the ice. So he, he did make a comment about that, and I think there's definitely something to that. It reminded me of uh, Julia the Cat Gaffney in D3 when she's, like, <laughs> skating in the circles, like, I'm so bored. Give me something <laughs> to do. You know, he was he was good. He was professional. Um, wasn't tested, you know, incredibly but he definitely did his job, and um, you know he he looked he looked poised, he looked calm in, that, in the net and confident. And somebody said like, Tuka looks like he's playing his best when he's you know not making any noticeable saves because he's people, in position. People people have stopped texting me. I think we need to put Swayman in, so that's good. <laughs> but it's good but, to know you have him if if Tuka does go to shit. Yeah. Like it's it's good to have a reliable backup that can win you more than just a couple games. Well, and I think the key difference if you look at the forty-one shots Rask faced in Game Five versus, you know, those goals we're talking about in games one and two, is there weren't shots getting deflected 10 feet out in game five. The Bruins had were doing 
a much better job boxing out, lifting sticks. Not you know, I don't think necessarily like the quality or the distance of the shots were all that much different from start of the series to the end. The difference was Rass being able to see them, shots not getting deflected. So even even when there was traffic, like he made a save on, I think it was Carlson, where there were like three or four bodies between him and Carlson, but he was in the right position and the shot didn't get deflected and it just like hit him under the arm and he squeezed it. And it's like, yeah, like Rask can make those saves if pucks aren't getting deflected, going off sticks and skates 10, 15 feet in front of them. And the Bruins were able to clean that up defensively. Uh, and that, that was that was a huge key. Like, to, to be able to take that away and not let the Capitals get, you know, those deflections, double deflections that they got earlier in the series, if, they're, if the shots are getting through clean, Rask is going to stop them, you know, far more often than not. So you don't have to have that debate of, oh, should he have had that deflection? Should his legs have been closed on that one? You don't have to have that debate if shots aren't getting deflected in the first place. Yeah, and, you know, when you look back at the five-game series and Ovechkin, Backstrom, uh, Kuznetsov, like none of those guys beat Tuka clean. In fact, the only guys to do so was Hathaway um, on a two-on-one, Nick Dowd on a still a deflection, but it was kind of like a, you know, shot tip. Um, it was all alone. You know, so those guys were like the Capitals' only you know, offensive performers through the first few games, and then, you know, the Bruins figured them out and, and kind of told them, all right, go back into your room, you're in timeout. Um, they did nothing the rest of the series. Uh, and, but neither did their top six. And um, you can, not only did the Bruins' top six come to play, their entire top nine came to play. Um, eight, of the, eight of the nine top uh, forwards of the Bruins scored at least one goal. Krejci was the one who didn't. Um, so, you know, uh, Scott's X factor was Taylor Hall going in. Um, he had a huge goal in game two to send it to overtime. He had a big goal in game three. Uh, Bridget's was Nick Ritchie who scored in the first game, but you know, he faded out a little yeah, bit. Yeah, but your X factor series. with Ritchie was more so like you named a player, but your, your, your main point was depth scoring. Yes. And so that, that's valid. Mine was, I would never have guessed that it, the depth scoring would come from Jake DeBrusque. Like well, I, not, not even to be like bashing him at all. It just, that's not the trend that was, um, that he was heading in throughout the season. And finally, um, he was able to get it going. And I, I really think that that's the direction he's still going to keep heading in. I, he's played his ass off some of these games. He's really been working hard. Scott Scott and I have been sitting next to each other in the press box, kind of like talking in between periods and stuff at TD Garden. And, and I said to uh, Scott one game, I think it was game four, that I was like, uh, DeBrus working his ass off on the penalty kill. And, he, and Scott looked at me and said, he's like a poor man's Brad Marshall on the penalty kill. Actually, he said he's a think, poor, poor man. Yeah. <laughs> But, but yeah, but it's like it's a similar kind of style where it's very aggressive and like he wants to use his speed. So it's like he's gonna get out on on the point. He's gonna get out on the puck, and then if it bounces free out into the neutral zone, he's pursuing. He's going after. And he's trying to turn into a scoring chance. Obviously, he can't do that at the level that Martian does. Martian is the most dangerous penalty killer in the NHL. But you can tell that like DeBrusque has probably been watching Martian do this for several years now, and was like. I can do some of that. Like I, I, yeah. I can do a little bit of that. And he's he's really never killed penalties before until this year. They've started using him a little bit more, and and I think Cassidy likes that. Like he likes the the aggression, and I think he likes what DeBrusque has been able to bring at times on the penalty kill. You know, if you're, I think if you're killing penalties and you're more just kind of set up in the zone and ask him to block shots, that's not really his strength. 
But if you if you're playing a more aggressive style and you want him closing out on the point, like you can do that. And I think he he was able to do that at times in the series. And one thing that stands out to me as well, this wasn't his best play, but at first live uh in game 4, the play, the coil goal came so fast that DeBrusque got the assist on that I originally thought it hit DeBrusque next to the net and just bounced to Coil. Yeah. He actually made a really right. nice play to bat that puck out just to anyone who was going to come crash the net ends up being Coil. He gets the assist, rightfully so, because that was a really smart play by him, and it ends up putting the Bruins up 3 nothing. and that was pretty much it. You know that game was over as soon as Coil scored back-to-back just a, a little bit after Pasta scored a power play goal. So uh, he kind of helped put the dagger in in the Capitals in that way, and that's a play that was just a really heads-up play. Well, it happens because he doesn't do a flyby, and he stops, right? And you see Martian do that all the time. Martian very seldom will do a flyby uh, when he goes to the net. And uh, I was I was laughing at myself like a minute ago when you said um, you and Scott were on the ninth floor because I'm just thinking about how much of a disruption that would be if I if, if you guys got me a pass with you guys, how much <laughs> how much I would I'll be embarrassing you guys up there. You'd just be watching the game and you hear me in the background chatting a bunch of people. Yeah, Chucky should really be on the top pop. You know, I'm, hey, I'm Brian. Nice to meet you. What's your name? <laughs> <laughs> no, we were talking the other day because Scott and I. This is the first time we've both been at the Garden at the same time this year. So we have we have seats right next to each other and Brian texts us and he's like you need to take a, a skate pod selfie mm-hmm. and Scott wouldn't do it Scott <laughs> wouldn't take us I said he goes we need all said, three people yeah. that was an excuse and I know it was <laughs> he said we need all three people we need Brian here I go we'll photoshop Brian in later okay we'll get a third person to stand next to us and put yeah. Brian's face He's, on him he says that no I'm never gonna get to a game <laughs> exactly he just didn't want to take a picture I could tell he was um, he was just bsing me <laughs> But anyway, uh, back to DeBrusque, you know, he, he definitely started to come along a little bit towards the end of the season on that fourth line uh, with Kuhlman and Lazar. We liked that look. And then um, that was that not Kuhlman, but that was the, the spot he was in to start game one. And he kind of played himself into a third line role for game two. And so that's something I wanted to bring up because, um, you know, you obviously have um, Taylor Hall and Lazar and Mike Riley you, you added to the team after the deadline, but you've also added Charlie Coyle and Jake DeBrusque now because they were on the roster, but they weren't on a team all year, and uh, at least not on the score sheet. And you've added you've, – they seem to be back. Um, you know, Coyle always plays hard, and he, you know, he always tries to do the right things, but he was just snake-bitten, but that doesn't, that's no excuse. Like, he's meant to be a scorer to an extent, and same with DeBrusque, and they're, they're doing that now. And, they're, and um, I think – I don't know if it was on, like, Instagram or whatever it was or – Twitter, but DeBrusque said something like uh, it was like a picture, and it's like you know when it matters, right? So, look, all is forgotten if you can perform in the postseason. And um, I think that mentality of a fresh start really helped him. And uh, the Bruins really have, like I said, they have three lines scoring, um, and their fourth line seems to be doing their job. You know, I wouldn't, I'd be hesitant to call them the best fourth line in the playoffs right now, but there's still some good fourth lines out there: the Islanders, um, Vegas. But they're doing their job and they're doing it well. So um, that that's that depth scoring is is massive for the Bruins, is it not? Yeah, and I would add that that third line, Richie Coyle DeBrusque, got some defensive zone shifts and some shifts against the Capitals' top six as well. So it wasn't like they're just being sheltered, put in offensive situations, you know, battling the Capitals' bottom six. Like they were getting some some defensive responsibility and. Well, and, and they were and, handling it well. And Coyle and DeBrusque all have been in the role of 
handling that defensive responsibility on the penalty kill. And that actually was a source of momentum for the Bruins in this series. And it was something Cassidy talked about. He said, I think our penalty kill gave us momentum because they were able to be so effective um, and give the team confidence that defensively they were solid. So then they could they could put a little bit more um, energy into the offensive side of things. And I think Coyle has been a very good penalty killer. As we mentioned, DeBrusque has stepped it up in that category as well. Yeah, definitely. It gets it gets DeBrusque involved too. Like if 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 you're a player that's not typically called upon for the for the PK, and he had lost, you know, he's lost um, power play time this year because of his, you know, he wasn't playing to his standards. So you know, if it's not five on five, you know, um, where are you getting your ice time? And so by Cassie giving him PK time, it gets him more involved into the game um, in ways where he wasn't in the past. I think one of my favorite moments of the series was after Coyle's goal and Richie's trying to fight Wilson from his <laughs> knees and then Dylan comes over and Richie's just like jabbing him and you see the guys celebrating the goal and then all of a sudden they all look over and they're like, hey, let's go help him out. Yeah, yeah, like, they, they, just... they were like smiling and then they were like, oh no, and yeah. they to go help him and then <laughs> and they you, all skate back away. They, they skate see, away. You just see Richie with that like that look on his face. He wants to kill somebody. He's got the hair flying through the helmet, <laughs> just jabbing people, jabbing the ref. It's just Con- like the funniest thing. Connor Ryan of Boston, shout out Connor, of Boston Sports Journal had a great tweet about that. He was like, it was that video, and it was like when you and the boys go to the bar for the first time, and one of them's already fighting the bouncer, <laughs> all yeah. excited, partying, and like, oh, we gotta go get Billy over here. Yeah, one. I mean, I don't know if it's just like the the obsessed hockey fan in me, but like when I go back, and, and I've been doing this for years, but um, when I go back and watch highlights of games, like I I just go back and rewatch like the goal celebrations too, because I think you learn a lot about teams and how they like react to each other, like. Like, for example, if, like, you see the Bruins score a goal and, like, Taylor Hall's on the ice or, you know, Mike Riley's on the ice or Lazar, these new guys, like, like, how do they react when somebody scores and it's not them? Like, they're just, it's like they've been there for Ryan, years. Taylor Hall is the most excited person <laughs> oh I've ever seen to win a game, see someone yeah. score a goal. When Marshawn scored the game winner, he jumped into Taylor Hall's arms and they embraced yeah. and I was like, oh my God, they're in love. I was like, I thought that it was like a romance movie. Like, they were just... He was just in love with the moment, yeah. and and that's how he's been for every goal. It's 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 actually really nice to see. It I, is. I take some enjoyment but, out but of it. You don't because you don't want to stay in the cup if you don't have that bond, right? And so like I bring up the Nick Ritchie play that was that was very funny, but you know you rewind the clocks a year, and he was a new player to the team. Um, played about six games, then there was three months off before the bubble, and you know it's well documented. He had some bonehead mistakes in the bubble, penalty wise, and people were like, "Get this guy out of here." He's whatever. Um, and then you fast forward a year and like you see him like you see his teammates fighting for him and he's fighting for his teammates and every time somebody scores a goal like the bench is going crazy and the guys in the ice are going crazy and it's just cool to see like guys that weren't teammates months ago but now they are and now they're trying to win a cup together and it's just it's cool to see. Yeah, and I think some of this speaks to you know one of the key talking points kind of especially coming out of Sunday night and the series clincher is this was the first series win for Patrice Bergeron with the C on his jersey and some of what we're just talking about that speaks to how good of a job he's done as a captain this year because it has been an exceptionally difficult year for team bonding, to get new guys involved, you know, to really feel like a team because they they can't go out on the road, they can't go out at home, they can't meet up away from the rink. They, and, even their meetings aren't full team meetings. They're meeting in small groups. Yeah, and, and this is this important just to interject that they still aren't considered to be a fully vaccinated team because you need to have 80 or 85%, 85%. of your team fu- fully vaccinated for you to be able to 
cut down on the social distancing. So even when they are together in the players' lounge, they have to be completely spread apart. And I think there's probably a a rule for how many people can be in there at a time. So they are getting minimal time to kind of learn about how each guy, especially the new guys like Hall and Lazar and Riley, how they are, um, you know, outside of the rink. Yeah, and yet they still look like a team that's, you know, extremely close. And like you just talked about, like Martian jumping into Hall's arms type thing. Like, it's, yeah, they do. Like, they look like a team that is very together and really has, like, something special. And, you know, I think chemistry in sports matters. It isn't a deciding factor. Like, it's a nice bonus to have, but you can have great chemistry and still be a bad team. You know, like no, but if but, you're not ta- if you're not talented enough, then you're not going to win anyways. But, but Brian referenced this. It's more important when you want to battle for those guys on your team, yeah. and the better you know them, the the more you're going to really want to go to bat for them and battle for them, and you know support them how they need to be supported. So I guess in that way, the, the chemistry is important. Um, so and it it is it has been nice to see and and you want to know something that comes up all the time that I would really just like to see, go behind the scenes if I could, Craig Smith. Everybody says Craig Smith is like the most awesome guy on the team. They all really are like, yeah, he's the best. Well, yeah, t- yeah Taylor Hall said he's one of the most well liked teammates he's ever had. Taylor Hall's been in the league for ten years and he's known Craig Smith as a teammate for two months, month and a half. Yeah, and and like other Bruins have said similar stuff about like how it comes up. Is. It yeah. comes up a lot. Yeah, I was going to – maybe I'll still write something about it. Like, I was going to write something about this during the series. I think it was when Hall said that and, you know, just ran out of time. But, yeah, you're right. Like, it's – you know, everyone says nice things about everyone, but it is definitely alarming, like, how over the top it is for Craig Smith. And, like, you can tell guys want to make this point that, like, yeah, this dude's awesome and we love him. Well, I think if I were to wager a guess, I would say he's very cordial, very polite, but also very – um outgoing he probably has one of those infectious personalities but I also think that when you have a personality like that off the ice combined with his work ethic on the ice I think it kind of makes him that total package like if he was the same guy off the ice as he is but was lazy on the ice I don't know if you would have Taylor Hall say that because I think there's there's a total package to Craig Smith where it's like you know he'll work his ass off and do anything it takes for his teammates but then when when they're off the ice he's you know just one of the you know probably the center of the tension a lot of times, you know? Yeah, and, you know, so, yeah, like, obviously all that surfaced because he got that winning goal in Game 3 with the steal behind the net. And, you know, and that... I think one of my new favorite gifts of all time is him smiling and putting his, like, tongue through his missing tooth <laughs> hole. Like, I saw it and it yeah. was like, I love this. this Has not gone that fixed all year. No. Nope. He hasn't played a single game for the Bruins with all of his teeth. Well, poss- but when he came here, he had all his teeth. At some he? point during training camp, I bet, I, or were they fake? I believe he I had all think, his teeth. No, I think like he had gotten them knocked out before, and I don't know if he got fake teeth or had them replaced or something. Well, but he eventually got to a point where he was just like, like I, I don't care. Like they, they keep getting knocked out. I'm done with it. In his introductory press conference, he had all his teeth. Yeah. I don't think he did. Oh, it, it, they, they, they could, they could have been fake though, just for that reason. <laughs> I don't know, but. You know who uh, who's had chipped front teeth for the last three seasons is Pasta. He just refuses to get those. And Ovechkin fixes. has never. Fixed yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, so, yeah, so we don't know who the next opponent is. It's going to be the Penguins or the, or the Islanders. I think we should hold off on that until we know, so we don't. You know, um, we, we can save that conversation. Should we get into a few of the questions that were sent to us? Sure. I mean, we get, we could also get into like, do we have any preference, Penguins or Islanders? 
All right, yeah, let's start. Let's start there then. Do you have a preference? Um, I do. So I lean towards the Islanders for one key reason, and that is that home ice is going to matter now with crowds coming back at just about full capacity. Bruins return to. Uh, they what, say what is near full capacity? Yeah, I know. Spot? Like maybe a thousand off. So at that point, it why hasn't. Don't full? And I don't. I don't one hundred percent understand this, Scott. Maybe you do. The Canes have full capacity. And no, so they're actually a little lower. I, I initially thought they were too, but they're a little below because the NHL. What is even the point of being a thousand less than full capacity? Like? So to, to, say, to he, say that you're not full capacity. Yeah, the, the NHL has these weird, strict like ventilation standards, and I think that's what's. And the NBA has something similar. So, like, you have to be able to prove you have, like, enough airflow or whatever if you're going to have full capacity. And I guess n- none of these stadiums are really able to meet that threshold right now. So they're all coming in, like, a little under, which is probably where the Bruins are going to be, too. And I don't know. Look, I'm not hey. a scientist. I'm not going to pretend to be one. So You know what, I though? I don't think after, they are either. After, yeah. the, after the last year, um, you know, 5,000 seems like a sold-out crowd. So if they can get to 15 or whatever, yeah. it'll, it's the same thing. The it's first, the same thing. The first playoff game back at the Garden um, on the Wednesday night game, game three, was uh, Scott was there as well, was ridiculously loud for the size of the crowd that yeah. they had. For twenty percent, it sounded like full a full crowd. So you think maybe having home ice against the Islanders could be a, one of the reasons you think they should play the, play them? Yeah, and I th- I don't think the Islanders are as good of an all around team as the Penguins. Like the especially, you know, I think Mal- Malkin's still kind of working his way back. He's played two of the four games on the series, hasn't really looked like vintage Malkin. So we'll see if he gets there. But if he does, or if he gets anywhere close, then the Penguins going. Crosby, Malkin, Jeff Carter down the middle as their top three centers. That's pretty scary. Like, that's that's a lot to deal with. Uh, obviously, the argument for wanting to face Pittsburgh would be... Goaltending. Goaltending. Tristan that, Jerry has struggled big time. He's given up four goals and, in three of the four games. And they don't have a backup, no. a viable backup option if he goes keep, down. Yeah. So I would, I would say this. I would say I think the more entertaining product would be the Penguins. I agree. I think... Um, as far as intangibles like crowd, uh, I think I think half your games at the Garden, half your games at Nassau would be pretty cool. Um, I I think I'd rather play Pittsburgh um, mm-hmm. because I think I've seen I've seen Bergeron and Marchand and the Bruins' defensive structure as a team, and Tuukka Rask been able to um, you know limit other star players in the past. Um, I think that between Tristan Jari. Being a liability, I think that Pittsburgh has definitely gotten better defensively, but I don't trust their team defensive game that much. I look at the Islanders and I see a team that's very disciplined under Barry Trotz, and I see a defense core um, in front of um, uh, Varlamov, who's a great goalie. But, but even he's struggled in this series and gotten pulled, and it looks like Fair. They, they might be riding Ilya Sorokin now, who's, well, who's played really well. Honestly, the they could put a traffic cone in that. I, I think that they're. Their defensive structure is, is is very solid. I think their forwards get back. They play 200 feet. And I think that the Islanders have a defense core that, um, except for Andy Green, kind of reminds me of, like, the Blues from 2019 where it's, like, they're big, they're tough, they're strong. Like, you know, to go to go in the corner constantly against Pelic and Polak uh, and um, Mayfield, like, those, those are some big boys. Um, so I think that, you know, from a structure perspective, I think while they don't have the same star power, um, and they also don't have Anders Lee, their captain. I would probably rather play the Penguins over the Islanders for that reason. 
Brian, I agree with you. I think the Bruins uh, would square off better against the Penguins. And I think that the goaltending is probably the main factor in that uh, that decision for me. Uh, the, the Jari stuff, he's just too shaky. You can't win a Stanley Cup with a, with him as your goalie. Uh, but what if he gets hot for a few games and... In, in, in here, he's just will, hot for one round. Like I will, I will put in another thought that I had going into this, which is that the last three games against the Islanders, the Bruins won. Um, so they were really, they were really a tough opponent for them earlier in the season. But then as the year went on, the Bruins seemed to kind of solve them in a way. Um, and I think that they are easier to game plan against because they don't have, um, you know, a Sidney Crosby on their team or a Jake Getzel on their team, a Malkin on their team, where sometimes those guys uh, you can't necessarily game for because they're so creative. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, those were, when thinking about it, I, I could see reasons why the Islanders would be a, a good matchup for them. But I, I do, in the end, think that the goaltending uh, disparity against Pittsburgh would be enough for them to want that series. And to side with Scott for a second on, um, you know, who you'd, who you'd rather play, um, you know, the Penguins will, you know, they could certainly make you pay um, if you go to the box, whereas the Islanders, um, you know, you shut down Matt Barzell, uh, you know, what do you really have? I know they have to go to the bumper with Pajot or whomever. It's it's not that, that threatening. Um, so yeah, I mean, I th- I think I think I would rather, but I will say this: ever since the deadline when the Bruins became their full team, I don't. If every team is playing to their ceiling, I think the Bruins are easily the the cream of the crop in the East Division. So yeah. I think they should beat whomever they play if they play um, to their capabilities. And I don't know if you guys remember this, but a few like weeks ago, before the standings shook out during the regular season, we were talking about what the number one matchup would be that the Bruins would want. And we said Pittsburgh. I, do you guys remember that? Because at the time, Pittsburgh was the fourth seed. Yeah. And we and the Bruins had had trouble against Washington and the Islanders earlier in the season. And, and mm. at the time, our, our mindset was that Pittsburgh would be the, the team they would want to face. Yeah, and but I think, you know, what we've seen play out then is, since then, is Pittsburgh got better defensively second half of the season. And... Jeff Carter has been maybe second only to Taylor Hall in terms of impact by a trade deadline addition. And arguably for Pittsburgh and and what they've needed from him with Malkin out for much of this stretch, arguably even bigger. I mean, he's been excellent for them. And again, if if you're putting him as your third line center, like that's a lot of offensive depth to contend with. So that's why, you know, for me, I would look at and say like, yes, you have a huge, you should have a huge advantage in gold, in goal against Pittsburgh, but that could, it could turn into a high scoring series. Like they'll get chances for sure. I guess against the Islanders, I would just take my chances on goaltending, like at worst for the Bruins should even out be a wash. And I'll take the Bruins in my opinion, just being a better team in just about every other area, the way I see it, especially post deadline, because the Bruins have been one of the best teams in the NHL post deadline. The Islanders' deadline additions of Kyle Palmieri and uh, Travis Zajac really haven't made a huge impact. Certainly haven't replaced Andrews Lee, who, Brian, you mentioned they lost for the season. Mm. Like, I don't know. I, I guess the Islanders just, just don't – like, I feel like those early season struggles against them, those first five games are so long ago and so much has changed that I don't – really put a whole lot of stock into that. And I guess, just to repeat what Brian said earlier, I think the Bruins match up as the better team against either of these yeah, teams. I agree. Yeah. So I guess at the end of the day, it 
for the Bruins, it shouldn't matter necessarily. And I know they will say it doesn't matter because it's out of their control. Um, so they're going to watch the series closely. They're going to game plan for whoever they get. But I feel like they know going into it that they're, um, they should be the, the number one team heading above both of those teams. And then where it gets interesting is, is when, when and if they come out of the East, when they reseed, who do they get then? So this leads us into a question we got on Twitter. Uh, Yuso on Twitter tweeted at us. So I'm not sure I agree completely with the premise, but we'll go with it. Most likely Boston will play against Colorado in the semifinals. Do you guys think Bruins have a chance to beat the Avalanche? So, you know, first off, obviously the caveat, like let's not get too far ahead of Most likely is, is, is a hard thing to say because if they get Vegas in the next round, who's to say? Yeah, which it looks like that is going to be the matchup. Vegas is up 3-1. Obviously, Colorado already moved on. And they were tied and, for the for the top two teams in the league. Yeah, they have the two best records. So wh- whoever wins that is the one seed when things get reseeded for the Final Four. Um, the Avalanche are going to have to play that s- six games in that series without Nazem Kadri, unless his suspension gets reduced, which I don't think it's going to. No. Um, now, the Avalanche against the Blues... We're able to just ride one incredible line that just obliterated the Blues. Uh, the Nathan McKinnon, Gabriel Landeskog, Miko Rantanen line, or as Pierre Maguire says, Miko Rantanen. Miko Rantanen. <laughs> Trying so hard to get the Finnish pronunciation. Out of like, like Finland, his father was a uh, <laughs> coal miner. <laughs> but, but, but whatever. Anyways, so that line was more than enough to beat the Blues. The Blues never really had a shot. Uh, Vegas is a much better defensive team than St. Than St. Louis. The Avalanche might need a second line, and Nazem Kadri is their second line center, and he is out for six games uh, because he's a moron and once again threw a hit to someone's head in the playoffs. And you know what we're going to be saying if if Colorado loses that series again? We're going to say we're going to be saying that Nazem Kadri once again yeah. knocked his team out of the playoffs. They're, they're That's why tra- Toronto got rid of him. They'll trade him this offseason. That's what happened when he did that to Toronto. That yep. he was gone, and and you know what? Who wants to pick him up after that? You have a Stanley Cup contending team. You think you're going to add him? You know, maybe get you over the hump. And he does the exact opposite. Yeah. Well, speaking of Toronto, and I'm looking at the standings, and if any team from the Canadian division besides Toronto wins yep. that division. Uh, you'll be playing the second seed, yeah. which would be probably Tampa, right? So, <laughs> which isn't, so isn't a whole lot easier. So by the way, whole, so. but, uh, look, I'll say. So, this. what you're saying is, the Bruins Bruins fans should be rooting for Toronto to lose uh, this first series, or at, or pick, just not would, be the it, team to it, come look, out. If, I, if I'm the Bruins, look again. This it's it's a fun conversation. It's assuming that you know the Bruins are in the final four. If I'm the Bruins, I want Toronto to win that North Division. That way, Toronto would play presumably Tampa if they were to beat their division because I think and you think the matchup would be well I think I think Tampa knows Boston obviously better than Colorado or Vegas knows Boston um and I would I would take my we've seen Tampa they're they're phenomenal um they, 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 I, I had <laughs> questions about whether they were going to be able to flip the switch because they one they had a bunch of injuries down the stretch two they weren't playing all that well but man Switch flipped. Like. Well, you get you get, you get Kucherov. You realize that the the NHL simulation had them getting swept out of the first round by the Panthers. The yeah. NHL simulation also had the Bruins winning the Stanley Cup. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, those simulations are they, they're so stupid. Um, look, Kucherov came back and looks like he hasn't missed a game all year. He hasn't played a game all year. Um, Vasilevsky is so good. McDonough, Hedman. Um, you know, Tampa. We know Tampa. Okay, but I look at the Avalanche and I look at I look at Vegas. Those teams 
aren't playing teams as deep, as experienced, and as well-structured at every aspect of the game as the Bruins are. So I think you'd, you'd, you'd look at like the Avalanche, and first of all, I think Bergeron and Marshan would do wonders to shut down McKinnon. I'm not saying that like that he would be shut down completely, but he would not face a challenge like the Bruins' defensive top players. Um, and it would I be think, interesting to get a series like that as well, just because it's never happened before. We've never oh, yeah, played a Western yeah. Conference team well, that's why, that's why in the fun. semis. That's yeah. why. That's why this 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 season in particular is unique and it's fun because you have these hypothetical Stanley Cup matchups that you would only get in the finals, but you can get them in the in the semifinals. So, I guess to answer you got that that hypothetical, yes, the Bruins the Bruins can beat any team in this league, um, including Tampa, in a seven game series with how they're playing and how deep they are and how well structured and experienced they are. Personally, I like to hold off on Tampa until the very end. Um, I I would take my chances with um, Colorado and Vegas before Tampa. Um, but again, there's so much that has to shake out. It's well, impossible to play. This what game would be right. really great would be if Carolina knocked off Tampa, and then you get Carolina, mm-hmm. a team whose number you have definitely had in the playoffs. What are they so. nine nine and nine and no uh, eight and two against them in the last two series they played them right? That oh no 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 eight and one they eight swept, one yeah they swept, they swept them. them in the final yeah Eastern so Conference eight and finals, one yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's but I'm, did you have a, a a preference, Bridget, or do you think they could beat Colorado? I uh, I would like the Vegas matchup a little bit better, despite the fact that Mark Andre Fleury is doing really well in that. The Riley Smith Bowl. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and again, think of it this way: if you did draw Colorado, you know you go out and Kadri uh, hit to Bruss again and get knocked out <laughs> of the series, so they'd be down there number three center, whatever it is. I look, I will say. Um, because of the the circumstances this year, and this is why I'm so glad that the NHL has a new TV deal coming up next year. Because I I cannot wait for Connor McDavid, um, who I pray to God can find a way to pull off a miracle and come back and win the series. But McDavid and McKinnon and all these guys, um, they're so so good, and I can't wait to see them on a, on a premier national um, stage in, in in the states. But um, McKinnon is so fun to watch. I, I, like I was saying, it's it's tough this year because everybody's been playing in their divisions. We haven't seen much of them, but you watch. He literally, it's like he's like you know playing hopscotch at the top of the. He does whatever he wants and just. Oh my god, he's so fun to watch. I would love to see, from a hockey perspective, a, a non-Bruins perspective. If I was a casual fan or a neutral fan, I should say. So I would I would love to watch the Bruins top line match up against the Avalanche's top line um, in more ways than one, not just offensively, but who can play better defensively. And I think we know the answer. Um, but I think the final four this year, whether the Bruins are in it or not, is going to be very fun to watch different matchups for sure. Yeah. And, and the Avalanche from an entertainment perspective, watching Kale McCarr play the point, especially in the offensive zone. Yeah. Also extremely exciting. Like that guy. Shout out to you, man. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I can't believe I watch him dominate the NHL and it's like, how is, guy, how is this guy allowed to play in the hockey East two years ago? Like, how is that even allowed? <laughs> like, can you imagine, like, oh, it was just, like he would go on coast to coast rushes, like, just for the fun of it. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, like, just, it's, it's like he'd like get bored and be like, yeah, I'm gonna just gonna go 200 feet here and create like, a scoring I, chance. I can't, I can't picture Kale McCarr playing playing uh, at Merrimack, my alma mater, in that little rink at Lala <laughs> Arena, just <laughs> playing the playing Merrimack. It's just ridiculous. Well, like, and to stay at UMass two years, it was, like he was great that as was, a freshman. That was yeah. something I was yeah. I was surprised about. But you, you know, the reason was that he wanted to win that national championship. Yeah. Um, Scott, I did want to bring up the other question that was brought up to us on Twitter um, because it's going to come up at some point in this playoff run where something's going to happen and it's going to come up later so let's bring it up right now and that's officiating in the playoffs yeah. um 
And I don't have it in front of me. I think the question was, like, what can the NHL do yeah. in front of you? Darren on Twitter, what can be done by the NHL to improve officiating consistency? And, like, we obviously saw this, this firsthand in this Bruins Capitals series. But this was where, not even – I would say this – the Bruins Capitals series wasn't even the series that was the worst officiated. No. I mean, they've all been – They've been pretty, like they've all had one issue at some, the, at least one issue at some point or another. The hurricane series, the the lightning series, like people have actually started to get hurt because the refs aren't calling the right things on the ice, and it's kind of just becoming like street justice, and people yeah. are just you know taking out some of the the best players in the league because they they want to get their own justice for for things that they think should have been called. So I I agree. I think look the officiating in the NHL. Um, you go back to the lockout in 05, 06, or 04, 05, whenever yeah, it was. 04, um, they came back from that lockout with a whole new rule book, right? It was, um, you know, there was no more hooking. You know, you, you, you touch a guy in the gloves with your stick, and it's a hooking minor. It's, like, it was, it was, it's stupid, but look, it's been that way for, you know, 13, 14 years now, 15 years. So that's the standard in the regular season that they've set. What I would like the league to do is to pull their officials in and say, look, boys, um, it's the playoffs. So in the playoffs, you go back to the pre-0506 uh, rule book and just let the boys play. If there's something that's egregious and somebody blatantly gets hooked or tripped or whatever, charged, hit from behind, you call it all day. Other than that, your job is to monitor the game, not not impact the game, not insert yourself into the game, right? Like, control the game, but don't, like, any time a ref is talked about after a game because they changed the outcome of a game, they haven't done their job properly. So I think their job is to monitor and not insert themselves. I, I, I can't stand when refs try to, you know, impact the game on their own. But there's no way to police that. So I there's think, no, but, like, that, that would be like a, hey, let's have a conversation with, with our refs and, and, like, tell them that. But at the end of the day, there's no punishment for any for any of that, like, well, not no following that. And well, I think after Achari got slew-footed, people wanted little, that. There's a little, like... Refs can get moved off like playoff series or you know, or not get picked for playoffs the next year or like there there is some accountability in that sense of if you're poor you're not gonna get like the premier jobs. Right, but like people people always and yeah, like so like okay, but that's the thing. So like the further into the playoffs you go, the NHL just like you boil down to your best teams playing the the NHL boils it down to their who who's our who's who are our best officials for the finals, right? But that's that's great. But that's why when you have something like a few years ago with Achari, you get slew footed. Like the most obvious call in the world, and it directly impacts the game. And those are supposed to be your best officials on the ice. And there's no having to talk to the media or answer to it. Nothing. The league, the league, the league covers these guys back. And so, look, that's why I said um, I think the best way to do it would be to say to them, guys, unless it's blatant. Don't call anything. But but here's the problem in my eyes. They're That's how teams want it preferred anyway. The the problem in my eyes isn't what they're calling sometimes, it's what they're not calling. So sometimes they're missing stuff that that deserves. Yeah, and to then be they called. go back and call a ticky tack call. So if just yes. that's, that's what I'm saying, like, unless thing. it's agreed, just don't call it. That that's what bothers coaches, players more than anything is inconsistency. It, yeah. If if you're gonna call ticky ticky tack stuff, whatever, if it's gonna be a tight called game, fine. Just keep it that way. The pro like I feel like what happened late in the Bruins series really like, illustrates this perfectly because Martian got two penalties for basically just getting better position on John Carlson. And they called him one for interference, one I think was a rough, where I guess his hand did come up like a little bit high. And it's like, well, 
okay, like if you want to call that, then like two minutes later at the other end of the ice, Carl Hagelin wound up and like took a two hander to Mike Riley's thigh. And I was like, and the ref is standing right there and there was no call. And it's like, what, like, what are we doing? Like, you can't, you can't call Marshan for his hand came up and slid into Carlson's helmet and then let Carl Hagelin get away with a two handed slash. So like, that's what bothers me is when it's, you know, and that in that case it hurt the Bruins, but reverse it, whatever. Like, just call it consistently. And some of the stuff in like the scrums in this series, you know, they they'd call one, and then like there'd be another scrum that looked identical, and there wouldn't be a call. And it's like either either you're calling it and you're consistent with that, and you call it to the point where a team stopped doing it because they know you're going to call it. But the more like you call one, then let one go, call one, let one go. Then you just end up in this mess where teams are going to keep doing it because they think they're going to get away with it. And also, it makes the officiating look even worse when you when you're when you're playing kind of a catch up style, and you're like, people are like, oh, "Oh, they missed that. Well, and you have and you have something like what happened earlier in the year. I forget the guy's name, but the ref that was caught in the hot mic, right? Yeah, it's like we all know that's part of the game. Was that Tim Peel? Yeah, it was. Yeah, It's it's like you know everybody knows that. What's the first thing that fans and, and coaches and players alike make think to themselves call. <laughs> when you see a bad call? It's like, well, we're bound to get a makeup call later, right? Yeah. So, yeah, and makeup calls are there because clearly one of the calls before was was a bad call. And you know what blows my mind is like, um, in 2011, the Bruins and Lightning played Game Seven. There were no penalties called, and either way, and it's one of the it's one of the best hockey games I've ever watched in my life. Um, even if you know. Just from if I wasn't a Bruins fan, it I was remember a that game. Great the game. one one nothing win. one nothing game, no penalties. And I'm not saying that you know never call penalties. I'm saying, but that was fun to watch, and I'm it sure was it was fun, fun to, to watch. watch from either side. But okay, but then you go to the Cup Finals, the next series, and you look back at the earlier in the playoffs where Bergeron goes to the box in Game Seven against the Canadians for a phantom high stick. You know, it's just okay. So Game Seven against Lightning was great, but. That wasn't the case the whole playoffs, so yeah. there's just inconsistency, and that, that's what. And, and some of that gets dictated by what happens in the series. That Bruins Lightning series wasn't full of cheap shots and a ton of extracurricular stuff, right. so they were able to say, "Okay, these are two teams that are trying to play. We're going to let them play." Bruins Canucks in the Stanley Cup Final, there was a lot of extracurricular stuff. So yeah, they were going to like call it a lot tighter, start making more calls. And I guess to that point, like Bruins Capitals, you go in thinking the same thing. There's been a lot of stuff between these teams this year. So I get you want to try to keep it in bounds, and that's why you had a lot of those scrum penalties early on in the series because I think they knew, like, this is a series where there's a chance that things could get out of control, so they were going to try to call it tight from the start. Um, but I, I guess, you know, to come back to the point about the question about how do you get more consistency, maybe it is, like, holding rest more accountable. Maybe it is... Maybe they do need to lay it out more in terms of like what the standard is. Maybe there needs to be meetings with the league like after every game, and it's not just okay, you know, throw the refs back out there. But um, it's tough. Look, just like playing hockey is a fast game, and you make mistakes. Refs are going to make mistakes. We all understand that. But I guess you know, you just want a consistent standard from one period to the next, from one game to the next, so that by Game three or four in a series, you should know what the standard is. And, you know, I felt like in this Bruins Capital series and in a lot of other series that we're watching, teams are getting like later in the series and you're still not really sure what they're going to call and what they're well, not. And that's when it's frustrating. There's really only one. 
penalty that's called that is always, always, always controversial. And I think that the league puts the refs in a tough spot with this. It's the hooking, the hooking standard. Like every like a trip is a trip, uh, a board, like all those things. I never, you never watch a game and and, and have fans say. Oh, that wasn't a tripper. That wasn't a board. Sometimes it's embellishment, but for the most part, it's like, oh yeah, that's they're guilty of that. But every single game, you have both teams being called for these stick infractions on the hands, and it's like, that's where the league runs into trouble. So if they just <laughs> and every time the old school hockey color commentators go, that wasn't a penalty in my day. Well, that, Bridget, was, that was that was totally legal back in my look day. Back and you would have guys carrying other players down the ice because their stick was hooked around the rib cage, and yeah, that's and it wouldn't be called and. That's one side of the spectrum. It's a, it's, it's brutal, but if the if the NHL just like kind of relax on the stick in the hands hooking call, I think they would avoid a lot of this crap. Yeah, uh, I mean, look, I understand why they wanted to get tighter with like hooking and obstruction calls because and all that offense. To, yeah, to, to, because the okay. game in the from the mid nineties to the mid two thousands really slowed down. Thank you, New Jersey Devils. But like that, that's how teams were playing the game. Then it was like. You know, you dump a puck into the corner, and there's no chance you're going to get it because you're going to get obstructed, hooked. Like, the defense just wasn't going to let you pass. So, so, like, that's why they started. That's why they, you know, really cut down on a lot of that stuff. And for the most part, it's worked. Like, it's a higher, it became a higher scoring game after that lockout and has remained a higher scoring game versus the late 90s, uh, early 2000s. Tell you what, if there's an overtime and the Bruins go shorthanded because of a, uh... A hook on the hands, which, by the way, they never call in overtime, which goes to show they know it's a bullshit call, so they don't do it in overtime. So where's the consistency? Um, I'll lose my mind. I'll break my TV, and if they get scored on, so that's but that's and you won't point. be able to write your three takeaways. Right, right. Well, I didn't break my computer, but um, <laughs> but yeah, it's like that's the point, though. Like they they'll they won't call those in overtime, really. So why call them in regulation? Yeah, it's stupid. Um, yeah, we went a little long on that answer, but yeah, it's it's. <laughs> Uh, is there anything else you wanted to get to before uh, we take off? I think we have like a few days before we even find out who they play, right? It's 2-2 two, two yeah. in the Islanders-Penguins. Uh, Islanders, yeah, so Islanders-Penguins. Probably playing uh, right now, actually. Game 5 just started while we're recording. So most people, when you listen to this, you're going to already know the result and who has the 3-2 lead in that series. But yeah, it could end Wednesday night if someone wraps it up in 6, or if it goes to 7, Game 7 would be Friday night. So, you know, I think... For the Bruins, you're probably looking at a weekend start either way, whether it's Saturday, Sunday, Monday. You think so? Because if, if they go 7, they're playing Friday. So you think yeah. that they would play on Sunday? I could see a Sunday or Monday start. Monday for sure, but you think, you yeah. think Sunday? That's quick. Well, I, I, that's the that's the point they, going 7, so though, right? They, they might target that Monday. That The NHL has always liked that Monday night of Memorial Day weekend. I think a yeah. bunch of Stanley Cup finals have started that Monday night. So they usually target that for a marquee game, and if you have – Certainly Bruins-Penguins, but even Bruins-Islanders, like, that's a good TV game. So I could see game one being Monday night. Bridget, any concern about um, rust for the Bruins when they do hit the ice again? I, I actually don't have too much of a concern about that. I think that, especially in terms of getting your defenseman back, it's more, more plus side than, than anything else. Yeah, and I was I was looking back at, I might write something about this uh, for Tuesday. but Me too. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just beat him to it, Ryan. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't worry about uh, rust for one reason. Do you remember how many days off the Bruins had before Game One of the 2019 Stanley Cup Final? Yeah, it was, uh, two weeks, right? Or it was, it was like ten, was ten, ten full days, days off. Yeah, um, from when they swept the Hurricanes to when the series with the Blues started. 
And they came out and won game one of the cup final, four to two. They outshot the Blues thirty eight to twenty. They totally dominated that game. And I remember we were all thinking after, like, oh my god, they might sweep or win this series in five. Silly us, but yeah. that's like that's how dominant they looked in game one, and that was after ten days off. So well, you just opened a can of worms. I'm not going to go there, but I will say going into that series, the biggest advantage I thought the Bruins had was their transition game. And when uh, is it Sunquist? When he when he hit Grizzly from behind and knocked him out of the series, essentially, that's kind of when the Blues forecheck got effective again, and they kind of went to town. The so the Bruins, Bruins have, but the Bruins have, you could argue, better puck carrying defensemen now on this team. Oh, I think I think they yeah. are better, you know. And, and look, uh, shout, we didn't talk about him, but shout out Mike Riley. I think he had two assists yeah. last night. So mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, and um, yeah, they definitely are mobile. And I think Char being no longer on the blue line helps that mobility. No, not to you know crap on him but it's just true and I think I think you know that's one other thing we didn't get to today but um it's kind of known now that you kind of wrapped up that chapter right like we know okay there's no second guessing the Bruins get rid of Z like um they didn't miss him in the series and he was a non-factor for the Capitals he was barely on the ice yeah. when it mattered the most outside of the penalty kill I don't think he and Jensen played all too many important minutes right? no so. I thought going into the series that Char was going to see time against the Bruins top six because he'd gotten a lot of tough defensive assignments for the Capitals in the regular season, and he did not at all. Laviolette went did everything possible to keep him away from the Bruins' top six. He just did not trust him and Jensen in that matchup. Did not use them in that matchup. Cassidy, uh, even on home ice, didn't. Cassidy never really chases matchups, but didn't really go out of his way to chase that one either. I think he was fine with how the Bruins' top six was playing against Carlson, Orlov, uh, Schultz, and Dylan. Like. I think I don't think Cassie had an issue with any of those matchups, but yeah, it was clear as day that Laviolette was keeping Char and Jensen away from the Bruins' big guns as much as possible. Yeah, so not not really a storybook ending for Char there. Um, all right, so no closing thoughts. No, no. Go once, go on twice. Go Manchester City in the Champions League final. <laughs> oh yeah, Scott's a big soccer guy. That's right. Um, He'll mix in like. A soccer uh, tweet once every ten tweets or something. Oh uh, yeah. Do you call it soccer or football? Soccer. I still say soccer, but that, I, I'm selfishly hoping that the Bruins don't start on Saturday just because of that. You play soccer, Scott? I don't. You don't? I just effed my knee up playing soccer a week ago. I was I was limping mm. around here for a while. Mm. Still got to get a knee brace. Yeah, I feel like that's not the first time you've gotten hurt playing soccer. No, it was my knee last time too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Anyway, um, so Bridges day to day with a knee injury. Scott has a big couple of soccer games to watch <laughs> soon. So, um. We will. Uh, I guess we'll check back in um, once we know the second round opponent. We'll preview that series. Um, I guess that would be probably this weekend at some point. Yeah, maybe maybe like a Friday episode if we know if it's wrapped up in six. Obviously, if it goes seven, we're not going to know till the weekend. So figure it out. Okay. In the meantime, Scott's going to try and get get me a press pass for the games, so, so can we can finally take, take, that, take selfie. that selfie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right, uh, that's it for episode 52, and uh, we'll talk to you guys later.